<laughs> All right, well, I think we'll go ahead and get started. It's about that time. Was everybody able to find a set of the notes? There's a handout. Uh, there's stacks in the back row there on both sides. We're going to start with the uh, description, but it's good to be here. So my name is Ryan Meyer. Um, I teach at the uh, Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, um, Biblical Languages and the New Testament. Uh, this is actually my third semester here in your Bible Institute. I spent two semesters uh, teaching Matthew last year, so I see some familiar faces out there. This year we're going to try it at an earlier time, so we're going to be meeting 6 to 7.30, and I've got myself a note that I'm supposed to stop at 6.45. We're going to take a 10-minute coffee break, snack break. So at 6.45, we'll take a break, and then we'll come back for our slightly shorter uh, second session. Um, I, um, I'm just grateful to be here. I'm very appreciative of this church. Uh, Dr. Bill Combs, who just recently moved, was a good friend, actually one of my New Testament professors when I was in seminary. And then I've, I've gotten to know your pastors, uh, Ken and Larry, and I'm just very thankful for what God is, is doing here in your church. And I think it's uh, just a great privilege that I get to be part of this uh, community institute on Wednesday nights. So let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into that first, first handout there. So let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful to, to be here tonight. I'm grateful for the good health and safety that you gave all of us in bringing us here tonight. I'm grateful for this assembly, this church. I'm grateful for your son, uh, the one who uh, was declared with power to be your son at the resurrection. Uh, he is deserving of a great body of people, a great church spread all over this world. And I pray that you would continue to build that as we teach and share and meditate on your word. And I just pray that you'd help us to use this class, this semester, as a tool to make us more like Christ uh, so that we can bring you glory through him. And we ask for this in his name. Amen. All right, so at the top of that handout, if everyone got the handout for tonight, uh, you've got my name there, you've got my email address. So I do like to take questions uh, during the class. So if I'm, if I'm just droning along and you feel like you need to stop me and ask something, feel free to uh, raise your hand. That won't bother me at all. If it's a really deep question or one that you think will take a really long time to answer, you can always feel free to, uh, to email me. If you're, a, if you're an electronic person, as far as notes, when, when the class gets over, you could feel free to email me for a complete electronic copy or of the PowerPoint slides. It's probably easiest if we just wait till the very end and then I'll, I'll send you a complete set. But if that's something that you're interested in, my contact information is there. So we're studying the book of Romans. Hopefully you already knew that because you're here. Hopefully you know what the class is about. You've seen that description maybe on your website. But we're going to try to tackle four, four objectives with this class. So first of all, I'm really hoping that by the end that you'd be able to tell someone why Paul wrote the book of Romans, what, what his main point in writing was, and then how he developed that main point. 
So be able to think through how the chapters all, what we call the chapters, how they all flow together in order to make a main point about God's righteousness. It'll be an interesting thing to think about, right? He, he's sitting down to write a letter. Most of us don't write a letter without a purpose. So we have to ask ourselves, what was the purpose that Paul had for writing? Uh, number two, there's going to be some places where we, we arrive at some forks in the road, where there's some debate among Christians, uh, even um, conservative Christians who have the same presuppositions. Sometimes they take slightly different uh, paths in interpreting Romans. So obviously I'm going to give you my take, I'm going to give you my interpretation, and I'll try to make an argument for it, and I'll at least point you in the direction of some of the other arguments that are out there. Uh, number three, I'm going to try to introduce you to some good books. So the best thing that you could do during this class would be to read Romans as much as you can. Just read it over and over again. It, it only takes a few minutes to sit down and read most of the New Testament books. I know Romans is a little larger than some, but it's not that large. If you could listen to it in an audio version while you commute or while you walk or while you exercise, but as much as you can hear the book of Romans over and over again, that would be the best thing that you could do. But if you want to go a little deeper, I am going to recommend some books. So I'll put, put up some books here. I like books, so this is probably why I'm doing this. So the first one, this would be the what I'm calling the recommended textbook. Now, spoiler alert, you're not taking the class for a grade, right? So there are no quizzes or assignments or grades. So this is just recommended. If you, if you want to go deeper and study the book of Romans a little bit more, uh, this would be a very good introductory textbook that I'd recommend. It's only about uh, 200 pages. It's got a lot of pictures and graphs, some of them that I'll share in PowerPoint slides, but I won't be able to share all of them. Uh, it's written by Douglas Moo. It's the one on the left there, Encountering the Book of Romans. Now, Douglas Moo is a, a longtime New Testament scholar who's made a specialty out of the Book of Romans. He's actually got two up there. So the one in the middle is his bigger commentary. It's over 1,100 pages. It's, it's deep. And I just show you that because I just want to give him credit that I'll be using his ideas frequently. You'll see his name pop up often in the notes when I'm using one of his ideas. Uh, so he wrote this introductory commentary. He wrote the big commentary. Now, both of them are now in their second edition. And he's also written other books about Paul and about Romans specifically. On, on the bottom of page one there, I'm just quickly listing off a bunch of other commentaries that I'll use. You'll see these names pop up in the notes. I'll usually just cite them with parentheses. So you'll see a person's last name and then a page number. And when I do that, that's just my way of saying I got the idea from one of these other men and I want to give them credit. But these are all other good resources. The only last one that I'll highlight is the, the one over there on the right. It's the one by Andrew Nacelli. It's the third from the bottom on your list. It's called Romans, A Concise Guide to the Greatest Letter Ever Written. So as the name suggests, it's small, it's concise. It's another book of just about a couple hundred pages. So in addition to the one I'm recommending that I'll use quite a bit, it would be another little book. This would be a great book like if you were going to lead a Bible study on Romans or a Sunday school class on Romans, 
it's a, it's a great little introductory uh, textbook, okay? Flipping the page to page two, I think I've got the schedule right, okay? So we, we start, we're starting today. We, all, we go all the way through December 13th. We're going to take a break in November for the week of Thanksgiving. But otherwise, we're just going to keep trucking along, meeting 6 to 7.30. Um, I'm highlighting that that's a tentative class schedule, okay? If you guys ask a lot of questions, I don't mind slowing down. We can slow down at some sections, and we can speed up in other sections. I'm not going to go word for word through the entire book of Romans. I'm going to assume at some places that you're, you're kind of already familiar with it, that you've read it before. But in that far right column is the schedule that I'm planning to keep. So if you wanted to spend extra time before class and really be prepared to ask a question about something that's been puzzling you, you kind of have an idea of when we're going to hit it in class, and we can talk about it together, okay? And then that middle column, if you want to do the reading from... Moo's book, and again, this is just up to you, but I'm giving you the rough page numbers that will correspond to each class that we meet. So that way, if you want to, you could be reading along with the class and getting a little extra out of that. Okay, that's all the stuff that teachers always have to go through at the beginning of the class, but that was pretty painless, right? It's pretty painless. All right, so let's, let's dive into the book. Let's go to page three. We're going to start out by asking some introductory questions. So this would be the introduction to the book. I don't want to spend too much time on this because I think what we're really after is what God actually says to us through the Apostle Paul. But it's important to remember, and I'll do this by just putting up a, a slide here, a picture. I, I can move my bag there if you like. Okay, okay. I'm just putting up this picture. One, this is an ancient manuscript, and ancient manuscripts are just fun to look at, okay? So there's the first reason I'm doing that. Number two, it's just a really easy way to remind us that this letter that we're, reading, that we're studying, that we're going to read and study, is very, very old. It was written 2,000 years ago in a different language by a person who lived in a different culture, had a different upbringing than we did. He's going to use terms and expressions that mean things in his world that don't mean anything in our world. And if he could get in a time machine and come to our world, there are things that he just wouldn't understand. Ways we talk, ways we act, things we take for granted that would be complete mysteries to him. So God chose to use him in his time and place in order to speak to us in a way that would be timeless, that would be significant forever, but in order to understand those timeless truths, we have to, as much as we can, pretend like we're in His shoes. We have to put ourselves in His shoes, understand how He's using words, what historical background He assumes. He's going to say a lot about the Old Testament, so one of the things that we'll do in this class, we'll be looking at, at many Old Testament passages. Because he's going to be a demanding writer, the Apostle Paul. He's going to assume that you know the Old Testament. And that he thinks that if, you just, if he just quotes a little bit of it, just even a little phrase, that you'll be able to think of whole chapters that will illustrate his points and move his argument along. So just remember, it, it's, it's old, but that, that is Romans. So this is uh, Romans from the 4th century. 
So a couple hundred years after the, the apostles died, and it starts in the top left corner, Paul, a slave or a servant of the Messiah Jesus, of, of Christ Jesus, all right? Why, why study it? Well, when we think about the fact that it was written a long time ago, there's a, there's a story that comes to mind, and that's the famous story of Martin Luther. Martin Luther, at one point in his life, according to his own testimony, believed he understood the key verse of Romans chapter 1, verse 17. So if you have your Bibles, let's just go ahead and look at that. So this is Romans. I'll, I'll back up and I'll read 16 and 17. Luther thought he understood this, but then later in life he realized that he'd actually gotten it completely wrong. And the reason he got it wrong is because he wasn't putting himself into Paul's shoes. He wasn't thinking about the words and the background the same way the Apostle Paul was. He was imposing something artificial on the text, something from his world, instead of thinking of it as being in Paul's world. So this is the passage. This is the key passage. This is the theme verse, so to speak, of the entire book. The Apostle Paul there says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You can see the key word already in there. It's, it's righteous or righteousness. It's a tricky little word because the same word also can sometimes mean justice. Sometimes it's translated in our Bible as justice. Sometimes it's translated as righteousness. When Luther's studying, he's, he's mainly reading out of a, a Latin Bible. And the Latin Bible that he's using really emphasizes justice. So he's thinking as he's teaching this and he's preaching that this verse is all about how God is just, how God is an impersonal, impartial judge who will always do what's right. But Luther, with a sensitive conscience, he thinks about that and he asks himself, well, how is that good news? How is that gospel? If God is a good judge and he's impartial, he always does what's fair and right, then we're all in trouble, right? We are all going to be condemned. He couldn't wrap his mind around why that actually would be good news. And then according to his own story, he's preparing seminary lectures. So he's, he's at a church there in Germany where he's regularly asked to give seminary lectures to men who are studying to be priests. And he's reading his Greek New Testament and it finally clicks one day. He finally realizes this isn't talking about God's status as judge. It isn't talking about the fact that he'll be just in judging us. It's talking about righteousness that's given to us. There's a righteousness that's given to us as a gift, not something that we ever earned, but something that God just declares to be true because of our connection to Jesus. And when that hit Luther, he said it changed everything. These are his own words to it. So later in life, he's writing a commentary on Romans. He says, Finally, by the mercy of God, as I meditated day and night, I paid attention to the context of the word. See what he's saying there? 
it wasn't just the word by itself, but he had to think about the word in the whole context. He had to put himself in Paul's shoes and understand how Paul was using the word, right? Not how his Latin translation was. Then I began to understand that the justice of God is that by which the just lives by the gift of God, namely by faith. This then is the meaning. The justice of God is revealed by the gospel. This, the passive justice with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the just one lives by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again. Maybe that is when he was born again. And had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of all scripture showed itself to me. So that's just one example of someone who tried as much as he could to put himself into Paul's shoes, listen carefully to what God was saying, and by God's grace, God actually used Scripture then to change his life. Other examples of people who have talked about the importance of this letter. So this is from a book by Kossenberger, Kellum, and Quarles. They say it may be the most important letter ever penned, all right? Another quote here. This one I was kind of leery to put up here because I wasn't really sure how to pronounce that first word, but I think it's Quintessence, am I getting that quiet? Yeah, I was a little nervous about that, okay. The quintessence and perfection of saving doctrine. Or Bruce, so F.F. Bruce and his little commentary in Romans, he says, there is no saying what may happen when people begin to study the letter to the Romans. And at that point, he stops and he talks about how it changed Augustine. He talks about how it changed Luther. He talks about how it changed Wesley. There were men who read the scriptures, specifically Romans, and that's what God used to convert them. And then through their ministries to convert many other people. But then he says, but similar things have happened much more frequently to very ordinary men and women as the words of this letter came home to them with power. So let those who have read thus far be prepared for the consequences of reading farther you have been warned. So you have been warned going into this class that this letter that we're going to study together has the potential to change your life. And if it has already changed you, it will continue to make you more like Christ. And I'm hoping that you can then use it to change the lives of others. You can meet someone for a cup of coffee and say, let's read the book of Romans together. Or you could be texting with someone across the country and you can just say, Harry, every week we're going to do a chapter and we're going to talk about it. We're going to chat about it. But as people hear the words of their Lord through the Apostle Paul, it isn't just a letter. It is a letter, but it's not just a letter. It's actually the Word of God. All right, so in order to try to get ourselves thinking about Paul and his context, we're going to ask six little questions of this book. The first two are really easy. Who wrote it and who did he write it to? Well, obviously it's the Apostle Paul. So the very first verse, if you got your Bibles open there, he introduces himself. This is just the normal way of starting a letter in the first century. You don't write to so-and-so and then put your name at the end. That's how we write letters. They would put their name first at the beginning to identify themselves. So he just says, Paul. Paul, a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus. 
And that's pretty universally accepted. There's, there's critical scholars, there's skeptical scholars who question who wrote many of the other books of the Bible, including some of the ones of Paul, but they don't question this one. And it, it's kind of arbitrary why they do that. But for their own reasons, no one even critically speaking questions this one. Everyone agrees that Paul wrote it. And when you get to the very end of the book in chapter 16, verse 22, he names another man named Tertius. So this seems to have been Paul's regular practice. Uh, it's not that he couldn't write. He probably could write. There just was a custom of some people could write better. There were some people that it was their specialty to write. In larger families, these would have been slaves who would have done all of the writing for their master or for the businesses. That, and Paul just seems to continue that common practice. He would dictate a letter Someone would write it, get it all polished down, looking good, and then send it off. And for this particular letter, it's Tertius. But again, over this whole process, God in his providence is superintending so that what Paul wrote and what Tertius put down on that first piece of papyrus was exactly the words of God that we were supposed to hear. Uh, it's also really easy to figure out who it goes to because it's written to the church in Rome. So look at verse 7. Verse 7, he says, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. So probably not just one congregation in Rome. There's probably many congregations spread throughout all of that large city that meet regularly in small houses usually. And, but they would have thought of each other as family. There would have been a kinship among all of them as brothers and sisters. So he's going to somehow get the letter to the city, and then he expects it to be distributed among a lots of different Christians. So just to give us an idea a little bit about Rome. We're all familiar with Rome, the capital of the empire. This isn't actually a drone shot from back then, okay? This is actually a, a model. This is some kind of setup. One of the things we got to strike from our thinking is the, the Colosseum. I couldn't find a good picture without the Colosseum. The Colosseum is one of Rome's most famous landmarks, but it's actually built after Paul was there. So it wouldn't have been there at the time Paul is present, even later. But the city would have been full of temples. It would have been full of stadiums and arenas. That orange thing that kind of snakes through the picture in the middle is the aqueduct system to bring fresh water in. It was a very large city, and one of the, the footnotes there, I'll, I'll add footnotes occasionally just to give you a little extra information. I added a quote there just describing the apartment complexes that most people would have lived in, five-story big complexes that were built that were really prone to collapse and to fire. In some ways, it has a lot in common with big cities today. In other ways, it's very, very different. Here's a, a quote here from the Roman historian Tacitus. Tacitus lives later in the first century, but he's writing about the reign of Nero. He says about Rome, the city where all degraded and shameful practices collect from all over and become vogue. Sometimes we as Christians, we could think that the troubles that we face from culture, the opposition, that we see rampant sin in our world could be unique to us. And that's just not so. In some ways, I think many careful observers, not myself, but other people have, have said 
that we're probably, as an American culture, getting closer to the culture of the first century Christians. They actually lived in something worse, and we may be getting closer to it, but Christianity thrived under those conditions. Christianity spread like wildfire, even when they were in a densely crowded city of over a million people with, if Tacitus is right, all kinds of degraded and shameful practices collected from all over the Roman world that had now become vogue. Uh, in that big city of over a million people, there's probably between 40,000 and 50,000 Jewish residents. And that's going to become really important to Paul's letter. That when he writes to the church in Rome, he knows that there's Gentiles and then there's, there's fellow countrymen. There's fellow Jewish people like himself who are also part of that church. All right, let's go a little bit further. When was it written? This is still relatively easy to figure out. So Paul has finished, this is the bottom of page three, he's finished his collection in Europe for the poor Jewish believers, and he plans to go next to Jerusalem to deliver this gift. That's just an interesting thing about this, this collection that Paul is gathering. He, he talks about it in, in this book, and he talks about it in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Uh, it was a major emphasis on this journey that he was going to take this money back to, to uh, Jerusalem. And because of that, we know that he's on his third missionary journey. It's his third missionary journey that he collects the money to go back to the poor Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. It has a dual purpose, if you remember. One, it's practically going to help them. <laughs> they, they actually do need money. Many of them have been kicked out of their families. They've lost ways of making income. And so they, they desperately need financial support. But number two, Paul's also hoping that this will bring glory to God because there's a rift between Jewish and Gentile Christians. They're, they're suspicious of each other. Probably mainly the Jewish side suspicious of the Gentile side. And he's hoping that this is a way of promoting Christian unity and love. That if he brings this large sum of money that he's gathered from all over Europe and Asia and brings it to the church in Jerusalem, it'll be a way of pricking their conscience to the fact that these brothers and sisters actually love them. And if they see the love for each other, this will be a means in of bringing glory to God. That's also related to the theme of Romans. So just to remind ourselves, this is the... The third missionary journey, so this is one of those classic maps that we, you know, we always have in the back of our Bibles, right? Paul set out from Antioch, he looped through Asia, cross over to Macedonia, he goes down to Achaia, you know, what we would today call Greece, and Greece is almost split in half. It has that great big bay, and that kind of hand-like finger thing at the bottom is almost separated from the mainland. We'll zoom in in a second, but Corinth is actually in that little strip in the middle. And Corinth is his last stop before he turned around and reversed his path and stopped in Miletus to say goodbye to the elders from Ephesus and then sailed for Jerusalem. And then he doesn't know what's happening to him, right? But the end of the story is then he's, he's arrested there in Jerusalem, all right? So putting that all together we can say that probably he wrote this letter around the year 57. I'll just show you one thing in your notes real quick while we're here. If you leave a finger and just go over to pages 8 and 9, I just, uh, just for fun, I included his chronological table. 
It's not something I created. It was created by a man named Harold Honer, a longtime New Testament professor that's now with the Lord. He kind of made a specialty out of chronology in the Bible, and I found this helpful. It's not infallible. I'm sure at some point there's a mistake. We just don't know what the mistake is. But here and there, he's likely off somewhere. But this gives you a general idea of the chronology, especially of Paul's travels. And it's been helpful to me as I study Paul's books. Okay? So turning back to page four, where is Paul when he writes this? Well, I kind of accidentally gave this away a second ago. He's in Corinth, okay? So he's in Corinth, we think, when he's writing to Rome. Why do we say that? Well, this, this also helps us just think a little bit about the letter. So when we get to chapter 16, Paul's going to list off lots of different people who he knows that have supported him in the ministry. That's one of the cool things about Paul's letters. You realize he wasn't a lone ranger. He always had lots of teammates, both men and women, who were very active in his ministry. And he takes an opportunity to thank and mention many of them. He specifically mentions this lady, Phoebe. And it seems most likely that he mentions her because she's getting ready to travel. She's going to Rome. So she's going to be the one who actually delivers this letter. He says that Phoebe is from Sancria. So if we zoom in on our map of Greece... You've got the the piece of Greece that's almost an island. It just has that little piece of land that connects it. On one side of the piece of land, so the east to to your right, would have been the the port city of Sancria. And then on the left, on the western side of that piece of land, would have been the big city of Corinth. Since that was such a narrow piece of land, they figured out if we put a port on both sides of it, we can then transport by land back and forth. Instead of a ship having to sail all the way around, we can, they, I think at one point they had a small canal that they could get ships through, or they would drag small ships, or for bigger ships, they would just unload them, put them on pack mules, carry them across, and then put them into the larger city. So Corinth and Sancria were sister cities. Sancria much smaller, but she's from Sancria. That's where Paul would have sailed in and out of every time he came from the east and going into to Corinth. And then point C there, there's some other clues. We, one of the things that we can do in Paul's letters, because this is all historically accurate, the same man is writing all these letters, and he's the same man that appears in the book of Acts. We can compare, and there's some other clues that line up with the book of Acts that tell us that he's likely writing from Corinth. All right? But this is the more interesting question then. Well, what's his purpose? Why is he writing it? So picking up letter A, Paul had finished his apostolic ministry in the eastern Mediterranean between Judea and Illyricum. He's going to mention that in Romans chapter 15. Illyricum, it was a big Roman province, and today that would be the nations of Croatia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Montenegro. We don't often think of Paul being in those nick of the woods, but he was. He, he traveled to the north of what we would call Greece today into some of the nations that make up the Balkan states today. Paul now wants to expand his ministry westward to Spain with the help of the churches in Rome. So zooming out and looking at the whole Roman world. So if I remember my color coding here, that's a little small, but the, 
Countries that are there in purple were added during the time of Julius Caesar. Uh, the countries in green were added by Augustus. So they, they're long established by the time Paul comes along. So that you seek includes Spain. There were people in Spain. There were Roman colonies in Spain. Spain would have been the, the furthest west in the Roman world. And Paul, as he's going to say in this letter, he sees himself as a pioneer. He doesn't want to go to places where the gospel has already been planted and established. He wants to go somewhere new. It seems to be his regular pattern that he would go to a large city like Ephesus, and he would put down deep roots. He would spend time planting a well-established, healthy church, and then he would train others to go out like spokes from a wheel and plant churches in the surrounding area. So as soon as he had one of those hubs set, he was always looking to go to new places. And it's his ambition then to go to the furthest extremities. He wants to go to Spain, but you know he's from the west, he's from the east. He's from Antioch, remember? So on all of those missionary trips, remember how this works on our maps? It's always a circle. He always goes back to where he came from so he can report to his church. But he knows that's a really far home base if you want to go back and forth from Spain. So what he's thinking is, I want another home base, somewhere that can be a springboard for more Western expansion of the gospel, and he sees Rome as the most likely category. If I can go to Rome, I'll encourage the churches in Rome, and then as they're encouraged, as they become more not united, as they become more healthy, what do healthy united churches do? They start other churches. So he's hoping then that the church in Rome will be a headquarters for planting churches in Spain. That's, that's his, his goal. So this, I thought this was a funny comment by Mu in his textbook. So this is the, the bottom of that paragraph A. So Paul is, in effect, asking if he can come to Rome, show his slides, and pass the offering plate for the new missionary endeavor. So to some of us, the slide thing just went right over our heads, right? He wasn't talking about PowerPoint slides, but... I'm a, I'm a former missionary kid, so many memories of doing this kind of thing. B, Paul plans to head to Rome after he first goes to Jerusalem to deliver the money that has been collected in Macedonia and Achaia to help the poor saints of Judea. For Paul, this gift was more than a practical help to the Jewish believers. It was also, he hoped, a way of uniting Gentile and Jewish Christians. The second purpose here is he also wants to unite Jewish and Gentile believers um, in the church there in Rome. The church in Rome was likely founded by Jewish believers shortly after the day of Pentecost. So it, it, we know for sure it wasn't Paul who founded the church because he would have said that. He's never been there before, at least as a Christian. Um, and probably the, the tradition, the legend that the apostle Peter founded it, that likely isn't also true. Likely, Peter also arrived later, probably about the same time that Paul finally arrived. And when they both arrived, there was already a church there. So where did this church came from? Where did it come from? We don't know for sure because the Bible doesn't say, but I think it's a very plausible explanation that it's all those Jewish believers who were present at the day of Pentecost. Remember when Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, because it's a feast day, there's Jewish people from all over the diaspora, all over the Roman Empire. And they got saved, remember? There's thousands of people that miraculously got saved that day. 
And some of them went home, and it's probably from that little kernel of Jewish believers that the church in Rome started, which means originally it was predominantly Jewish. Originally, the church would have been made up of people that all kind of looked the same and all kind of believed the same things and liked to do the same things together. And it's pretty easy to promote a superficial unity when we're all just alike, right? But what happens if people come in who are different, right? There's the rub, right? And there's where the power of the gospel is most evident because the gospel actually has the power more than anything else in this world to bring people together who are different and combine them. So Paul really wants to see both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians together. It seems likely, picking up there in C, it seems likely that even the first Gentile converts would have been among those who are called God-fears. We get this phrase, remember, in the book of Acts. These are people who like Judaism. Judaism is a clean religion. They seem to have healthy families. They seem to do nice things. We don't want to go full into it, right? There's a lot of things about it we don't want to do, but we'll, we'll dabble in it. We'll be connected to it. So God-fears were Gentiles who were interested in Judaism but didn't want to actually convert and become Jews. Probably it was among some of those people that the first Gentile converts appeared. But then something big happened. So around the year 49, so this would have been only 10 years before Paul writes the letter, the emperor Claudius expelled all Jews from Rome. We get a reference to that in Acts 18.2. Do you remember when Paul is on his second missionary journey, when he first comes to Corinth? He meets um, Aquila and Priscilla, right? He meets Aquila and Priscilla, and the historian Luke there tells us that they're in Corinth, even though they're Jewish people from Rome, because Claudius had kicked all the Romans out. And I tell you there in the footnote that the best explanation that we have from Roman historians is that the Jewish people were arguing over the Christ. So the Roman historian Suetonius, he says they were arguing over Crestus, and Crestus is probably his corruption, his misspelling of the Greek word for Christ. So you can kind of like just put your imagination caps on for a second and see how this would have worked. You're Claudius. You're the emperor. You're not really interested in any of these little minority religions. You hear that in the Jewish ghetto, there's a great big disturbance, an argument over some guy named Crestus that they're all arguing over. So instead of actually solving it or trying to arbitrate the sides, he just decides you all need to leave. I'm just going to kick all of the Jewish people out of Rome. So what would that have resulted in in the church? Suddenly the church would have been all Gentiles. And this lasted for several years before finally they were able to return. Because remember when Paul goes back to Corinth on his third missionary journey and he writes this, he's actually at the end of the letter going to greet Aquila and Priscilla. He greets them. He says that the other people from Italy are sending you greetings. So they're actually now back in Rome. So what happens is you have a church that grows with only Gentiles, but then those Jewish believers come back and they still have all of their Jewish sensibilities, their desire to keep the food laws, their desire to keep special days. But now suddenly they're a minority. They're the weird ones in the church. They're the ultra-conservative ones, all right? They now clash with the majority, and you have two groups of people within this church that aren't actually showing brotherly love towards each other. And Paul wants the gospel to flourish, but he also wants this church to be united and to be stronger. All right? 
So putting that all together, let's go to letter F on the next page. In the letter, focus, Paul focuses on number one, the good news that God graciously saves sinners and transforms them. And number two, God's removal of the barrier between Jews and Gentiles in the church. Paul's message has an individual or a vertical component. But by that, I just mean that everyone individually needs to trust in Christ and receive righteousness as a gift. But Paul also has much to say about the unity that the gospel creates in the church. So there's a, there's a corporate, horizontal, okay? So, you know, thinking of kind of our typical approach to Romans, we, we would rightly emphasize that vertical component, right? Like a Romans road type approach. And there's nothing wrong with that because that is part of his emphasis. Each one of us need to personally put our trust in Christ and make sure that we are vertically right vertically right with our God. But we also, all of us who have been made right, need to be right with our brothers and sisters on a very horizontal level. And Paul's going to tackle both sides of that coin in this letter. All right, so as we go through the letter, we're going to use the outline that Moo develops in his big commentary. He wrote an 1,100-page commentary on Romans, so who am I to reinvent the wheel, right? I'm just going to use his outline. So this is his outline. I'm giving him credit. So when you go through the notes, uh, all the uh, outline, you know, Roman numerals, A, B, C, all that kind of stuff, that'll be his. If I add anything, I just do it with bullet points usually. And now we can go to page 10 and start talking about the letter itself. I'll stop there for a second. Actually, it's it's a good time. We got a couple minutes before the break. So any quick question before the break? It's a little warm in here, isn't it? Is it just me? Yeah, it's a little warm in here. Yeah. Maybe maybe we can figure that out at the break. I don't know. So <laughs> Paul Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, th that city wouldn't have been there yet, that, or at least by that name. Yeah. So I'm, um, I'm, I'm thinking of an old song about Istanbul and Constantinople. It's just running through my mind. I can't make it stop. But, um, but I visited there, and I remember yeah. seeing a place that there was a sign saying that he had been there. It was outside of Istanbul slightly. Okay. Yeah, if we go back to this map here, he seems to have kind of hugged towards the south. So when he crosses over, you see he goes through what's called Cilicia, and then there's that big province called Galatia. There's th those were some of the very first churches he went to on his first missionary journey, including the church where he was stoned and they left him for dead, the church where he meets Timothy and brings Timothy along. And then he later writes the, the book of Galatians back to these churches. So Galatians is one of those books that's not written to one church. It's written to a whole area of churches. But then you're right. He goes into the province of Asia. So Asia was a very large, significant province. And Ephesus was its capital. So Ephesus, which would be to the south of what's today Istanbul, along the, the uh, western shore of Turkey, that was one of his cap or home bases. He spent almost three years there uh, making sure that there was a well-grounded church. Because remember when he writes the book of Colossians, he says to the people in Colossae that he's, he didn't plant the church. He doesn't know them personally. And they're a little 
town just to the east of Ephesus that probably people from Ephesus planted, maybe while Paul was there, but he didn't do it personally. So he's, he's covered this area very well, Turkey, Greece, up into what we call the Balkans. Uh, he, he's actually going to say at the, uh, at the end of the book in chapter 15 that he thinks of this as like covered with the gospel. Not that everyone's saved, but there's a church strategically located everywhere so that people from that region can hear the gospel. So now it's his burden. He wants to go to unreached people. And he's specifically thinking of the, the frontier land in, in Spain. There have been lots of mines, lots of Roman colonies, and of course, people who lived there before the Romans, who are now under Roman occupation, and they also need to hear the gospel. All right, let's take a break. I think we're supposed to take about a 10-minute break, and we'll be back about five till. We're going we're gonna to enjoy the fan. I'll try, to, I'll try to talk a little louder. I'm just going to go through some of these bullet points. Uh, what's going to be the normal practice is if I'm quoting from our passage, you'll see it in bold print. So if you see something in bold print, that's what I'm up to. And I'll also try to throw in some verse numbers in bold print. So if you want to uh, follow along in your Bible, you can. Or if it's easier, you could just look it up in your Bible later. But we're going to look at the first three sections. So he starts the letter opening going from verses 1 through 17. He starts out with a little, what they call a prescript. So basically, like I say up here on the slide, Paul's introducing himself, and he's greeting his readers. He views himself when he greets himself, or when he introduces himself, as God's slave or servant with the specific task of being an apostle. Or to put it another way, Paul has been set apart for the gospel of God. That's his, that's his obligation, and it's also his, his privilege. He describes this gospel two ways. So this good news is also the word for gospel. It shows up there for the first time in verse, verse 2. That word gospel, or good news, it actually comes from the Old Testament. Oh, I'm sorry. I my microphone on. All right, so for everybody at home, we're at the top of page 10. Sorry about that. So Paul is going to be talking about the gospel. When, when the gospel writers, so think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or when the apostles, when they used that word gospel, they weren't just making it up. It was already a very common word at that time for good news. So if, if the Caesar did something big, or if the Caesar was even having a birthday, that could be described as good news. It was, a, it was an everyday word. But I don't think they're just getting it from there. They're actually drawing from their earlier translations of the Old Testament. So passages like, you could look up later, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 9, or Isaiah 52, 7. Isaiah was a prophet who 700 years before the coming of Christ saw the future. He saw that someday God would act to make this world right. That someday you and I could live in a world where the curse was removed and there was a good king on the throne. And God himself was going to have to act in order to bring that about. And Isaiah's word for describing all of that is good news, or as we've translated it, gospel. So it's the same story, the same story that Isaiah prophesied about <laughs> The same story that John the Baptist and Jesus preached about. It's also now the same story that Paul is sharing 
And it's the same story that you and I are supposed to share. It hasn't changed. We have more details to it. We can talk about more specificity than Isaiah could, but the story hasn't changed. That this world is under the curse because of sin. God is acting to make it right through his Messiah, Jesus. Jesus someday will return and he will rule forever. And he'll make this world the way it should be. And the only way that you and I can be part of that world is by turning from our sins and putting our trust in Christ. So Christ, remember, at the bottom of that paragraph, is just a Greek way of, of translating the Hebrew word that we normally think of as Messiah or anointed one. So sometimes you'll hear me say Messiah interchangeably with Christ. There's something about saying Messiah that it just has a little different nuance to it, doesn't it? It maybe connects a little bit more with the Old Testament. It reminds us that this was the Old Testament's promised anointed king. Who is also the son? In verse 3, he describes him as the son. He's the subject of the gospel. He was born into the physical lineage of David. He didn't become the son of God at his birth. He was the one who already was God's son. He shared in God's nature. But he did become David's son. So there was a point in time when he wasn't David's son. So Paul here is really setting up two spheres. So you look there in your Bibles at verse 3, when he says regarding his son, who as to his earthly life, that's one sphere. That's a, that's a sphere. That's a thing that Jesus had to enter. There was a time where the Son of God didn't have an earthly life. He didn't have a humanity. And how did he get into that sphere? Well, he entered it by being a physical descendant of David. Through his mother, Mary, he's a physical descendant of David. He entered that earthly life. But then Paul uses a parallel expression in verse 4 when he says, who through the spirit of holiness, it's kind of lost to us in English translations, but it's the same word that gets repeated. Some of our more word-for-word translations will have the word according to. So according to his earthly life, he entered it by being the seed or the descendant of David. But according to this realm of the Spirit that's ruled by the Holy Spirit, how did he enter that one? He entered it not through his birth, but through his resurrection and his ascension. So he was always the Son of God, but he was declared to be the Son of God through power by the resurrection. So it's not talking about two natures. So it's not saying he had a human nature and a God nature or divine nature, although that's true. That's just not what Paul's talking about right here. He's talking about two worlds or two spheres that our Lord Jesus lived in. The one who was eternal entered the one sphere through being born of David, but he now enters this new sphere where he's at the right hand of God, and from there he'll come someday to be the judge of the world. And he entered that sphere by his resurrection and his ascension. Now, for the very first time, in a way that has never happened before, there is a good man on a throne at the right hand of the Father who's qualified someday to come back and rule this world and do what Adam should have originally done. He'll be the second and better Adam. And the proof of that, the demonstration of that, was his resurrection. The resurrection appointed him. It validated that he really was who he claimed to be. That's, that's good news, isn't it? You see the, the majesty of that, the importance of that. You see how that touches all areas of life. 
any conversation that you and I are involved in, whatever issue, whatever complaint, whatever hurt people are feeling, the solution to all of those ultimately is going to be the coming of Jesus Christ. So all of those conversations can be gospel conversations, and this is a great privilege. Paul himself sees this as a privilege. He, he calls it here a gift. So when he says there in verse 5, we received grace and apostleship, that's not two different things. The grace is the apostleship. The apostleship is the grace. It's a gift. Apostleship isn't just an obligation. It's not a duty. It's not just a, a ball and chain around his neck that he regrets. It's an actual privilege. God doesn't need us, does he? God could have saved this world without us. He could have gathered his people a different way, but he chose to use us as weak vessels. And so Paul sees this as a great privilege that he gets to travel through the Roman world sharing the good news with Gentiles, including people like the Romans, he says in verse 6. The purpose of this apostleship, so why did God give him this gift, this privilege? It was so that he could see the Gentiles brought to what he calls here the obedience that comes from faith, which is likely Paul's way of describing both the initial act of trusting in Christ, so when we initially hear the message of the good news and we repent and believe, there's a sense where we're obeying God, right? Because the gospel message comes with an imperative. <laughs> you must be born again. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, right? There's a command there. So if you obey the command, that could be one sense of obedience. But I think he's also thinking about the obedience that grows out of faith, right? It's not just a one-time act of obedience. If you and I have truly trusted in Christ, it's only because we're born again. <laughs> because God's done a miracle in our heart. And a person who's born again will obey. So there's, there's an obedience that naturally springs from your faith. And he wants to see more and more Gentiles come to that obedience that comes from faith. And then he finally, in the closing section of that opening paragraph, he, as he often does in his letters, he wishes these believers grace and peace. All right, let's look then at the second section. He, he gives thanks for them. Verses 8 through 15, Paul thanks God through Jesus for the believers in Rome because he's heard about their faith all over the world, he says in verse 8. We've got to allow him a little bit of hyperbole, right? Just if I, like I said, everybody owns a cell phone. I mean, somewhere, somewhere, there, you know, somewhere out there, there's an exception to that, right? But you know what I mean by that. If I say everyone owns a cell phone, you get my drift. We, we have to allow him the same kind of figures of speech that we use today. He sometimes uses hyperbole. What's he mean by that? He means there's all kinds of people spread out all over the Roman world that have heard about these Christians' faith. He'll say something very similar to the believers in Thessalonica, right? That their, their faith has been well heard of, right? That should be our ambition, right? To bring glory to our God that way. That when people think of our congregation, we, they would think of us who have a faith that from that faith then springs obedience and bears fruit. Paul wants the Roman Christians to know that although he has often wanted to visit them, He's been prevented from visiting up to this point. He says that in verse 13. His purpose in coming to Rome, we've already talked about this a little bit, but he wants to preach the gospel in Rome, and he wants to see additional converts among the Roman people. But as 
it, it will especially come clear when we get to Romans 15. He wants to make them stronger, not just for their own sake, although that is a good thing, but it's also so that they can make other churches stronger and see the gospel grow. Then we get to see the theme of the letter. These are those verses, remember, that Luther read that changed his life. So looking at verse 16, Paul gives the reason for his eagerness to preach the gospel in Rome. And verses 16 through 17 introduce the theme of the letter. Paul says there he wants to preach because. So you got that little word for. You see that at the beginning of verse 16? For. So one of the ways to trace the author's argument is on these little tiny connective words. So these are almost to us sometimes throwaway words that we don't put a lot of emphasis on. But they're actually really important. Words like for or because or so that or in order that. Little tiny small words but they show you the connections between verses so that you're not just thinking about the one verse, but you're thinking about the verses that come before and after. So why, And I'll try to highlight these as we go through the notes. So why does he want to preach the gospel? Why is this so important to him? Well, he says, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Um, Paul wants to preach because he's not ashamed. I'm, I got ahead of myself. He wants to preach, first of all, because he's not ashamed of the gospel. There is, that there is a possibility of shame points to the fact that Paul knows his message is not popular, but he's not going to change his message. He's not ashamed because, there's the second four, the preaching of the gospel is accompanied by God's power, which results in the salvation, as he says, of everyone who believes. You see how that's going to fit into his message? There's not a, one gospel for Jewish people and another gospel for Gentile people. It's the same gospel. God found them in the same boat, so to speak, of sin, and he rescued them through the same gospel. So they should have a natural affection and unity towards each other. That also means he's not going to just change it because he meets opposition. You know, that's the, that's the stress point for us often, right? when we're going to share the gospel with someone and we know there's a particular aspect about it that we might want to leave out, right? I don't want to talk about this particular point. If I talk about this, I'll look foolish, right? If I talk like this or tell them this point, I'll look like a bigot, or at least I'll be labeled that way. I'll be labeled unscientific, right? All kinds of ways that we could be ashamed of the gospel. But Paul's answer to that is there is only one gospel, it's the one gospel for everyone, and it's a gospel that comes with power. It's the means that God has ordained for saving people. And so because of that, I'm not ashamed of it. Even if it meets opposition in Rome, even if the people reading this letter don't like some of the things that he says, he's not going to change the message in order to win friends. He's going to keep sharing the one gospel because that's all there really is. He says there it's for the Jew first, in the middle of that paragraph, he's likely not describing a chronological order. So he's probably not thinking of like he goes into a, a, a town and he first gives the gospel to the Jewish people and then later he gives it to the Gentiles. Even though that does happen, that does happen often, that's not what he's speaking of here. And even if he had been in one of those towns and he'd seen a Gentile, I don't think Paul would have said, no, I can't talk to you first until I find some Jewish people to witness to. 
So even though that was sometimes his chronological pattern, what here he's saying is it's especially for the Jews. So that, that little word first there, it could also be translated especially. This gospel message is especially relevant for the Jewish people. Why? Because it was first promised to them. Remember the word itself, gospel, that he's using is coming from Isaiah, a Jewish prophet for the Jewish people. They were the ones who were first promised that someday they would be restored and they would be part of a world that was made right with a good king on the throne. And so it had a special reverence, relevance for them, but it was also the same gospel that was preached to Gentile people. Paul's point would be that the, the gospel was, as I said, especially relevant to the Jewish people because the promises of a restored world were first made to them. But the Spirit will use this same gospel to transform Gentiles who trust in Christ. There's not a different gospel for each people group. So then in verse 17, we have another four. You see how these keep layering up? Each one's a purpose for the statement that came before, or a reason for the, per, for the statement that came previously. So Paul gives the reason why the gospel has the power to save everyone who believes. As the gospel is preached, he says, the righteousness of God is being revealed. So this is one of our, our key phrases in the whole letter. And it's also one of our first kind of forks in the road where there's multiple interpretive options. So I'm going to give you three options. And like every good teacher, the last one is usually going to be mine, right? That's usually how these work. So you probably already figured that out. So the, I say there at the top of page 12, the meaning of the phrase righteousness of God is debated. Number one, I'll put these up here on the slides too. Some people think it refers to God's saving power or his act of salvation. So in other words, Paul says that when the gospel is preached, the righteousness of God is revealed. So one way of taking that would be well, his righteous acts, his righteous deeds. So God is righteous, right? He always does what's right. And so when he saves people, that's just more evidence of his rightness. That would be one way of taking it. And that has a certain plausibility to it because there are Old Testament passages that talk about God's righteousness that way. So here would be Psalm 72. This is Solomon, a, a psalm of Solomon. And he's talking about the king. So I think it applies to himself, but then ultimately to his greater son, Jesus. And it's also kind of a prayer. He's expressing a wish for this king. And he says there in the scriptures, Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness. You see that? So that it would be the king doing the righteousness. The king would be performing it. Your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills, the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon through all generations. That sounds like what a lot of people we, we talk to on a daily basis are looking for, right? Someone who will save the oppressed. Someone who will champion the cause of the afflicted. Someone who will endure forever and never have to stand for re-election. Wouldn't that be great? 
That's what we're looking forward to. That's our king. And the Old Testament says that when he does that, it will be in righteousness. Okay, So the, the first view would say that this is righteousness performed by God. Well, second of all, some think, number two, it refers to the believer's righteous standing before God. So this is more the direction that Luther was going with it. So instead of God being the one who's doing the righteousness, this is actually righteousness that's given to the believer. So now it becomes the believer's righteousness. In this interpretation, the righteousness described belongs to the believer, i.e. something that is graciously given to him by God. Because this righteousness comes from outside the believer, it comes from Christ, it's sometimes called alien righteousness. I don't know if that's a real helpful term, right? Because we use alien righteousness, that sounds a little bit like E.T. or, or something to that effect, right? But alien, in a classic sense, just means it's from outside of you. So it's something that's given to you, something that doesn't belong to you properly, something that was given to you as a gift. And I would definitely say the rest of the letter points us in the direction of this option. Paul focuses later on a righteousness that's counted as belonging to believers. So we'll have to spend a long time in Romans chapter 4, because that's going to be an important passage, right? That we're, we're credited with righteousness. We're, we're counted with righteousness, is what Paul's going to say. Believing does not make a sinner righteous, but believing or trusting in Christ does lead God to consider a sinner righteous. This type of righteousness is a gift. I hope you'd all admit tonight with me that you're not righteous. I, I will freely admit I am not righteous. All right? I have a wife and two children who could come and testify to that effect. I have friends at work that could testify to that. I have students, some in this room, that could testify to that fact. Right? I'm not perfectly righteous. My only hope in life and death is Christ's righteousness, that I would be credited as if I had done his work and my sin then was taken by him, right? That is going to be central to this letter. So that definitely is something that the letter talks about, but we still have to answer the question, does this verse talk about it? You see how that's two different questions? It could be true and a big part about the letter it just might not be in this verse, okay? So we still have to think through that. So there's actually a third option. A third option tries to put both of them together. It tries to recognize the contributions of those who argue for the first view while recognizing that the second view comes closer to Paul's primary emphasis. This view would say that the righteousness of God is God's activity, but it's a saving activity that he accomplishes by declaring sinners righteous when they trust in Christ. So you see how we're trying to combine both of them? So yes, the righteousness of God that's revealed when you and I preach the gospel, it is something God does. It comes with power. God is actually the one who saves. When we as dirty, rotten, scoundrel sinners are turned around a complete 360 in our life and given new birth, and now produce the fruit of the Spirit in ways that we never would have done before, that displays God's righteousness, right? He, his goodness, His perfectness is on display. But the way He does that is by crediting us with righteousness. So the act itself comes with this gift from God. So here's a couple different ways that it's been explained. The, the first two are from our, our textbook by Moo. He says, The gospel brings salvation to people, because it reveals God's promised way 
of putting people into right relationship with himself. So what's he saying there? The Old Testament already promised that someday there would be a good world with good people. And God has to keep his promise. God is faithful to his promise. He can't just have a world with no people in it because he's promised already that there would be a new world with people in it. But then the question is, how is he going to get those people there? Is he just going to wipe their slate clean and forget about all the evil they've done? Even though he demands perfect righteousness and they haven't done it, is he just going to pretend as if they did? No, in some way he's going to connect them with Christ, right? That's the answer to the solution. So for him to accomplish that righteous purpose, he's going to save these people from their sins. So that's what Mu there says in the second point. However, this is accomplished by God acting, first of all, to rescue sinners from the condemnation they stand under because of sin and declare them innocent before him of all those sins. This is what God's righteousness involves and what the related idea of justification means. So remember I said that little word righteousness, it also means justice, which also means it's the word that's sometimes translated justification, especially if it's in its verb form. So it's a little tricky in English. We've got all these words that all go back to the same original word. You've got righteousness, you've got justice, you've got justification, you've got just the, the idea of being right. I mean, sometimes righteousness is kind of a mouthful, so especially if I'm teaching kids or maybe explaining the gospel to someone who's never heard our lingo before, I just say, God is making this world right. God is making this world right. You're not right. So you not being right cannot enter a right world. So how is God going to make you right? And the answer is he's, he's going to give you rightness. He's going to take Jesus' rightness, his record of always doing what's right, and he's going to give you that as a gift. And we don't call that a verb form of he writes you. The technical way is he justifies you. He declares you right. He declares you not guilty and as one who's kept the law even though you haven't. So let's just try to put all of those together. So we're going to try to take the strengths of all three of those views and summarize it. And thankfully, somebody else already did it for me. All right, so somebody else put this better than I could have. So this is from one of our recommended resources. This is by a man named Frank Thielman. He tries to capture the meaning of the phrase righteousness of God in verse 17 by pointing uh, to chapter 3. So this is getting a little bit ahead of the story, but I think you remember some of chapter 3 of Romans. He says, Paul will explain in chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, that the death of Christ is the means by which, and then I numbered these out, number one, God's saving righteousness rescues sinners from condemnation by number two, giving them righteousness, but doing so in such a way that God's righteous character remains intact. So I'll put that up there on the board for us. So it's God's saving righteousness, and he does it by giving them righteousness, but then we're going to have to answer the question, how can he do that and still be right? How is he a good judge if he looks at Ryan, who is a sinner, and declares him to be right, right? And this is getting ahead in the story, but it's because I'm connected with Christ. I'm united with Christ. That's going to be the answer to it. 
So the first view is correct in pointing out that the Spirit will inevitably transform believers. And it's also correct that the gospel upholds God's righteousness or justice. However, the reformers, like Luther, they were correct in keeping justification and sanctification separate. So we're, we're not just justified because we are sanctified. So the Roman Catholic view is still that God infuses you with grace. He causes you to start producing fruit. You cooperate with him through the sacraments. And then after you have done this, he now justifies you on the basis of your sanctification. And the reformers are saying, no, you are justified and you are sanctified. You can never be one without the other. They always come as a package deal, but you're never justified on the basis of your sanctification. You're always justified by Christ alone through faith alone. It's always on the basis of what Christ has done for you. So that's why even though there's three components, I underlined the one because that is central to the story. So Luther was right after all. I think people have rightly developed it further, and they've seen other implications that maybe Luther wasn't thinking about in that moment, but he was right. His intuition was correct, that there was a righteousness that was available to him as a gift, and he was right to see that and think, I've been born again, that this now means something to me that it never did before. All right, one last little phrase I want to talk about. So that phrase there, by faith from first to last, in verse 17, some of our other Bibles have it more woodenly or literally translated as from faith to faith. Maybe some of us grew up hearing the King James when we were little, and it was from faith to faith, which is more word-for-word translation. What does this mean? Well, the NIV takes it to mean especially faith, or from faith first to last, faith with an emphasis on faith. But I think what he's actually referring to is the spread of faith, right? So if I said I was going to go around and I was going to put Chick-fil-A's from town to town, if I had that power, right? I'm going to distribute Chick-fil-A's. I'm going to go town to town or town from town distributing Chick-fil-A's. That expression in English means I'm going to put one in each spot, right? He's using a very similar expression. He's talking about the spread of faith. As each person comes to faith, as there's a person here in this town that has faith, and a person here that has faith, as faith keeps spreading from place to place, the righteousness of God is being revealed. I think that's his point. And he backs it up there by quoting from Habakkuk 2.4. And we don't have time in the class to preach Habakkuk or dive into it. I do have an article that I wrote on this passage, Habakkuk 2.4. So if that's interesting to you, I put it there in the footnote. But basically, Paul sees himself at the same place that Habakkuk. Habakkuk desperately wanted to see God come and defeat his enemies and make this world right. And the message essentially to Habakkuk is you have to wait. Habakkuk is given this great vision, Habakkuk chapter 3, of the future, where God someday will come and make it right. But Habakkuk's going to die before that comes. In the meantime, there's going to be lots of proud people who boast and claim that they have the right to rebel against God. But what God says to Habakkuk is the one who believes me, the one who trusts in me will live, will have everlasting life. The one who trusts in me, the one who has faith, will live because of that faith. So Paul's taking an Old Testament passage, and basically what he's saying is this is the way people have always been saved. There wasn't a different way to get saved in the Old Testament. 
It was always by hearing God's promises, what he someday was going to do through the Messiah. And even if you didn't live to see those come true physically, you were at the end of time going to live forever. Even Habakkuk will someday be in this new heaven and earth. Why? Because he trusted, because he had faith in his God. And that's the same message that Paul is preaching in the gospel. I didn't leave a lot of time for questions, but any, any quick questions before we go? Yes? I don't know if Okay, well, that's out of bounds then. <laughs> that's right. Go ahead. Yes. Now, how does this righteousness, it seems, because the only one that's righteous is the one that actually shows the truth. Right? Yeah. So remember I said there's two things that come together as a package. So we, we are justified, which is God declaring us righteous, but also we're gradually becoming righteous. We're being sanctified. So we receive the new birth. We were regenerated. And it starts out small, like a new child, right? We're not yet what we will be. But we gradually, through this life, we become more like Christ. If you looked at our life as a whole, with all of its ups and downs, we're progressively becoming more like Christ. And that's inevitable because we were given new birth. So even though justification is legal and we can't see God's throne room, how do we know he's declared us innocent, right? Well, but we can see justification. I mean, I'm sorry, you can see sanctification. You can see the fruit of new birth. And so... In the parable of the sowers, what Jesus is saying is there's going to be people who initially start out and you're going to think that they've been made right. You know, they're initially going to have the right direction in their life. But it tends to be when things are going well. When they meet persecution or they have another competing love that shows up in their life that they decide they love more than Jesus, they're going to stray. But the people who are really born again are the people who persevere and have fruit. And so that's, that's where Jesus is going in the parable. Now, how does this differ from the Catholics? Mm-hmm. It sounds to me like that's what they're saying. You have to get converted to God's conversion. Um, and then, as a result, then you have a gradual uh, yeah. increase. It sounds like the same thing. Is, is it or no? Yeah, so the way it's classically been described to me you know, and I know not every Catholic person believes this, um, just like not every Baptist believes the same thing, right? So that your, your sanctification is your participation with God's grace. So it begins with your baptism, where you receive some grace. It continues as you go through the sacraments. And as you cooperate with God's grace, you're becoming more sanctified. And it's on the basis of... That's the key word. It's on the basis of that sanctification then that you're justified. And the Reformers correctly, I believe, saw from Scripture that that is the fruit. It's not the root. That's how I've always remembered it. So it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of your regeneration. But it's not the root. It's never the basis. If, if you and I had to base our eternal security ultimately on our own righteousness, we would we'd be lost. We have to have the righteousness of Christ that we hang on to as a bedrock. And then we also, as act of love and a demonstration of our regeneration, we produce fruit. But that fruit will always be imperfect until Jesus finally comes for us. 
and makes us into who we finally will be. So that, that's kind of my way of quickly sorting through those two. All right, I better let you go, though. The, warm, the room is warm, and I want you to come back next week. All right, I'll see you later.